In this episode of the David Watson podcast, I'm speaking to Tracy Lawrence, the founder of Choose. And Tracy and I are actually friends. Um, and it was just an amazing conversation. We got into so many things in a direction I was never anticipating or expecting. And it was great to reconnect and remind myself just what an amazing lady she is. I really, really enjoyed her conversation, her outlook on life, the way she tries to connect the dots, put things together, what she was trying to create with Choose and why that was important. And I, I strongly believe that this um, that she, she hit some notes that are of great value to a lot of people and there's a lot to be gained from listening to Tracy. I hope you all enjoy it. Hello, Tracy. Welcome to the David Watson podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. And the, the big question is, how are you? <laughs> this is too big a question. <laughs> well, uh, I'll start with the where am I? Um, I am here in Oahu, Hawaii, and I've been here since August of this year. And, um, and I'm spending most of my days um, journaling and surfing and working on a YouTube channel and generally just kind of taking a break from the hustle and bustle of my life as a startup founder. And I'd, I'd say the how is that I am, I feel like I'm kind of undergoing, I'm a little bit in my, my nest. I'm in my shell right now, yeah. you know, and, and kind of re I'm going back to basics a little bit and kind of evaluating like after I, I built this company for a decade and we raised $40 million and we grew to 300 employees and then we sold it in this year and we went through hell and back again. And so it's been this incredible journey, but a really, really draining one. And it was all of my twenties. And now that I'm 31, I'm kind of stopping and saying, okay, why, why did I do all of this? And what is the next, what is the next decade going to look like for me? And, and how do I do this? Not as a reaction to the rat race, but out of a place where I want to do it for myself or maybe out of different motivations. So I'm like very in the thick of it. I don't have any answers yet. Just have a lot of questions. Yeah, because for context, you and I met a few years ago in Morocco surfing. And yeah. you were kind of, the, what was the company? It's Choose. Choose, yeah. Choose. And you were the founder. Uh, it's in San Francisco. And yeah, it, it kind of was getting big then and then blew up and went all across America. And yeah. obviously, originally, when I contacted you, I was just like, we could have a great conversation about this as this, this, you know, CEO, this tech founder, this massive company that you started from scratch to find out. It's like, no, I've sold it. <laughs> it's yeah. all done. And I'm like, whoa, I did not see that coming. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it's funny because life cycles of these tech companies go from, well, they could go from two years because you give up and you don't get any traction to 10 years. Yeah. And mine was on the 10 year side, you know, and, um, but, but the period of when it got really popular to when we sold, it was short. That was probably four, three to four years of because, that journey. The rest yeah. of it was just slog. Yeah. And so the big question for me, um, is actually how did you get to a place because I knew you before I kind of knew just as it was taken off like the slog was starting to reward you if that's mm -hmm. the right if that's mm -hmm. the right way to articulate it 
but mm-hmm. it, it's just like you were past the the the, the slog for nothing if you like, mm-hmm. which is when mm-hmm. I kind of first yeah. met you. So there was huge excitement about where this was exploding. Mm-hmm. And then obviously through social media um, and your talks um, that you put on LinkedIn and Facebook and stuff like that, I seen the company going, oh, you've gone everywhere from New York to Texas. Do you know what I mean? And it's just like, mm-hmm. wow. So how did you get to a point where you're like, it's time to sell? So, I mean, really towards the end of the company, this company was born to take in venture capital and to grow very, very big, but it was never going to be, if it couldn't raise the capital, if I couldn't raise the capital, then I wasn't going to keep doing the company. Like it was never meant to be a company that was going to be lifestyle. And we kind of looked at it and tried it, but I got to a place where a couple of years out from the sale, actually one year before the sale, I went to the board and I was like, look, if this company doesn't grow, then we're going to sell. And and the reason, and they fully agreed, and the reason I got to this place is because for me, I felt like without the big growth, I had plateaued in my own learning and the things that I was doing. I went from, you know, at that point, I probably raised four or five rounds of funding. And I spent most of my time doing that. And that's a skill set that's very specific, but, and I, I'm not the best at it, right? but I kind of learned the core tenets of how to raise a round of venture capital. And I learned about how to work with that level of an executive team. And there was still more to be done on culture, but, and I just didn't have that passion anymore for anything else except build and grow and grow. And then I got, I started to get into building the brand of the company and I started to really enjoy that, but that was 10% of my job, 15% of my job. Right. And, and so I think I just my personal growth level started to be underserved by the company. So I feel like I was kind of personally outscaling the company. And it, it, it would be wrong to say I was getting bored because, trust me, there were so many curveballs that were being thrown at me, like learning how to do multiple rounds of layoffs. That yeah. is definitely a skill set. Is it the thing that I want to learn particularly? No, I'd like to do it once and never again. I had to do it multiple times. It's not nice to so, fire people. And in mass, you know, it was, it was horrible. So, so I think I'd gotten to this place where I was like, look, we're either going to grow big or I need to like, we need to stop this. We need to reevaluate. We need to be able to sell the company and I have to move on. Cause like I see my personal purpose as building authentic connection and, you know, serving family style meals where people could come together over food was one version but I now know that there are many other versions of that, you know, that personal purpose statement that it could take over my life. And I, and I wasn't, I wasn't ready to commit at all unless that company was really going to grow big. And ultimately we couldn't raise our last round of finance. And so that prospect of growth basically, and that's when we started can you hear me okay? Yeah, we just had a brief, like, a half second, a split second of cut out. But it's good. It's fine. Do you want me to repeat anything? Uh, no, no, it's yeah. fine. You literally, you got, got to the, okay. um, you, uh, you got to the last round and you weren't successful. Right, right. So basically, we, we couldn't successfully raise the last round. And at that point, that's when, that's when I knew. Then we couldn't, we didn't have the engine of growth in order to continue to grow and scale 
And so that's when we decided to sell the company. So it wasn't so much a, a personal decision, more a business decision. It was, it was both. You know, I think personally, I probably came to it sooner. I do remember there was, there was one moment where we had sort of a fork in the road. And we said we could either make it profitable or we could sell it. So this was after we knew we weren't going to raise more capital. And there was a path to profitability. It was going to be a much smaller company, right, in order to build that engine of growth. And maybe we could rebuild it, but that would have taken years. And actually with COVID, that would have never worked. Yeah. But independent of, of that, I knew I had two paths and I could not decide because I felt so guilty wanting to be moving on from the company, wanting to sell it. So I sat down in my couch uh, in Pacifica, this little seaside town south of San Francisco, and I'm looking at the ocean. And I just, I sat down for probably three hours and I just thought, thought about it. And, it. and I had a whole conversation with myself, talking out loud. I'm an only child, so this isn't too crazy. I'm talking to myself about my decision and I just, I start crying. And I start crying and I realized not only my decision, which was genuinely in my heart of hearts, that I didn't have the energy to rebuild this, you know, to be a profitable company over many years. But I also realized that I had lost my connection with myself and what I really wanted deep down inside. And that's actually why I was crying. And in a weird way, I, I ended up crying tears of joy because I had that moment to reconnect with myself and say, Tracy, what do we do I actually want? Because I, at my worst case, I'm a people pleaser. I really love people. I love service to people. But sometimes and oftentimes, it means I don't know what I want in the moment. And I hadn't stopped for years to ask myself what I wanted um, until that moment. And it was it was very clear to me. So this is going to sound very me. And it's a good job you know me. So this um, getting in touch with yourself and listening to yourself, which is all very Californian. How do you actually go about doing it? Born and raised. <laughs> no, no. But, in, in, you know, I mean, it's it's the cynicism in me, despite the fact that I used to teach meditation is um, how do you go about doing it? Uh, so the easiest path for me. So I find that my thoughts when they're in my head are too fast for me to catch. It's kind of like they whiz by a million miles a minute and I can't stop and fully evaluate them. My feelings whiz by faster than I can think them. And so the thing that helps me is externalizing those thoughts. And the way that I do it with the least judgment is journaling. Um, although I will say that therapy or a very a friend who is very skilled at the the skill set of listening, with with asking good questions and very little of their own input can help too. But I use therapy as the first gateway to learn kindness to myself. You know, I grew up in an environment where I just I I was an overachiever and I would work super super hard, and my parents were running a business and they were fighting all the time. And so I just, I, I hid away at school. And so I became this like slave driver to myself. The first 20 years, 25 years of my life, I was a full on slave driver to myself. And then as I went on, I started to realize this voice in my head is so mean to me and it's burning me out. 
and I was burning out and it was bad for the company and it was bad for me. And so as I started to, I, I started to go to therapy and journal about the same time, I started to learn like, oh, I have all these interesting thoughts in my head and they're really damn mean, like that I'm being horrible to myself. I'm, I'm, I, 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 I drive myself to crazy ends. And so I think that's the first step of it, of how to have that relation with self. I think that there are probably other ways, you know, psychedelics um, are certainly another way to get in touch with yourself in a way that you wouldn't necessarily know what, what that, that deeper unconscious is saying. I used to keep a dream journal at one point um, where I would actually tr tell myself to wake up after a dream and your body will do this. You can train yourself to do yeah. it and write your dreams down and analyze them. But I'd say journaling is the easiest gateway to all of this. I'm, I and, must I have, and I have, a, it's a daily practice. Yeah. I used to journal a lot. Uh, I do now if, if I've got too much going on in my head, I will just start writing and just write and write and write. And then when it goes silent, I will force myself to carry on writing. Even if I just have to write the words, blah, 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 I'm feeling really silly yes. writing this. And then just to see if something else comes on. Um, and I also will talk out aloud. I'm very, mm. it's, it's, it's almost like a meditation. And I will just talk about what, why something, I will try to talk about why it's bothering me. So I'll talk about what's upset me and that I'm angry yes. or that I don't understand. And then I'll try and yes. figure it and then I'll try and verbalize why <clears throat> and see what insights come through. But it was interesting as you were talking um, there, you said something and you still put the company first and then remembered to put yourself second. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. still like, it wasn't fair to the company. And then you're like, oh, and me and me. It's still mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, I'm not that important to myself. Mm -hmm. And and interestingly, I, I've talked about this with mothers. I'm, I'm not a mother, but I've talked about it with mothers and, and they'll say, you know, if you just replace the word CEO or founder with mother, it's, they feel the same connection, which is this guilt mode. And I don't know, I don't think it's just unique to women. I, I think parents feel this too, whether, you know, fathers feel this too, but it's this sense of guilt that like this thing that you have birthed or created or work on that thing has to take priority over your life. That's how I felt anyway. I had every moment that I wasn't working, it was an opportunity cost. And if I was spending on myself, I was like, damn, I could be working. And so I eventually learned to stop working weekends, but I still felt guilty about doing it. You know, and I, I actually live a life of a lot of guilt. I'm half Chinese, half Jewish. So this is not uncommon that I would feel this kind of guilt. It's like in my blood and in my culture, but it's also a horrible way to live. You know, I, I, I want to be able to live with, and that, that's kind of part of the sabbatical that I'm taking the time to learn how to work, not just out of guilt and obligation, but also to work out of a place of like joy, passion, excitement, learning. Um, and, and there was that, that balance at choose, but towards the end, it felt like it was a lot of obligation on my shoulders and I wasn't working for, for myself anymore. And do you think you, do you think you're able to stop? Cause I'm listening stop to, what? well, cause I'm listening <laughs> to, um, like I said, I'm fortunate that I have some insight as, because I, I've met you and I've known you, we've got drunk together. And so I have some insight, you know, but you're not a sit still person. And despite the fact you've used the word sabbatical, 
as I, it sounds to me that you're you're swapping one form of doing a lot for figuring out how to do a lot of something else, but feel relaxed about it. Yeah. Yes. You know, let's talk about surfing for a second. Okay. Well, yeah, well, my sabbatical. Yeah. So how, how is surfing? <laughs> I, I still have personal goals. And I think in that sense, you're right. I'm not going to, I'm never going to stop. I'm, ne- I'm never going to stop working on myself. I'm never going to stop working towards something. I'm never going to stop questioning my motivations. I don't think I can. And you know what? In the beginning, I judged myself for it. I was really upset. I'm like, Tracy, you're, you're here in Hawaii. Go lie on a beach, you know, and, and read a book, you know. And, and I, was I like, can recommend a book for me? you. I, <laughs> and I, I'm beating myself up, right? I'm like, good God. The whole lesson I'm trying to unwind is beating myself up. And, and I spoke to a good friend of mine, and she's like, you know, she's like, Tracy, even on weekends, I like creating lists for myself. I was like, I do too. And, and you know what? There doesn't have to be anything wrong with it. Like I don't have to, uh, what's the word? Pathologize it, yeah. right? Not everything is a pathology. Some things are just a preference and, and that's okay. So I'm, I'm also learning how to do that. But so surfing wise, I, my goal is to start to get, I want to be comfortable riding eight to 10 foot waves. Cause you just said that it was um, up on your Instagram. And, and I, well, I wouldn't say I'm comfortable doing it. Um, and, and for those of you who don't know, we, we call, we call you big wave, Dave. <laughs> yeah, this, so, I think yeah. big, big wave, Dave, you know, don't, don't judge me harshly, but <laughs> I'm trying to get used to those eight to 10 foot waves. And, um, and that, that's a goal that I'm like throwing myself into, you know, so I'm still, I'm still moving forward on things, at least in my mind. But there's also with some reference to big Dave, big wave, Dave, there could also be just some, <laughs> bloody dumb dave could he nearly drowned a couple of times you know so did you cut your head open um, you showed me photos of that right yeah i put six stitches through my head and six staples all at the same time where the fins went down the side of my head yeah sure yeah surfing's dangerous but you're committed when you're on those big waves (laughs) but that never happened on a wave that happened as i was coming into the beach and i stepped off the board and tripped over and a little wave picked the board up so i fell over Right, and you oh, like you no. like you do. You just trip over, fall flat on your face. Yes. I did that. Luckily, the beach was packed full of tourists, people, wives, kids, mums, dads, the whole works. And this little wave came along, picked up my board, and dropped the back of the <gasps> board and the two, the three fins straight down the side of my head, and split me wide open. You know. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad there was a, a whole amphitheater of people to to bear witness. We luckily for me, God bless the RNLF, uh, RNLI, who are the Royal National Lifeguard Institution, I think, who were uh, on board to deliver first aid because uh, I nearly bled out because I actually oh. seriously <clears throat> did the dumbest of things to do, but it couldn't <laughs> have been less heroic. So, <laughs> you know, it right. just. I mean. Look, I, I just, sorry, I did it this year. I was doing some work in my garden and sliced my leg open, walking past a roofing sheet, put 10 stitches in my leg and sl- cut it open to the bone. And you know me, so you'll understand this. I'm there having a discussion with my brother about whether we just super glue it and tape it up. And then we're like, do you know what? I think it needs stitches. We better go to the hospital. And that yeah. was the, that's the conversation <laughs> with my leg just open. Like you can see the bone. It's like, maybe we can do this at home. Or do you think we need oh medical God. attention? <laughs> Watch and a YouTube video. How to super no, no, but, glue your you know, Yeah, just super glue it, some gaffer tape, 
it'll be sweet. It'll be good. But it's like, do, do, do. And, I, and this is genuine. What the decider was is when I pushed it back together and let it go, it just flopped open. I could still see the bone. It's like, I think I probably need proper stitches. It's not a from home job. And that was just yeah, walking past the roof machine. I just caught my leg on it. <laughs> I feel like at that point, I would be freaking out. I would, I would force myself to. So, so you have steely reserve. Maybe for less heroic moments. Oh, I'm just dumb. But I don't know. I don't think the world's that simple. <laughs> no, Dave, David is. Maybe not the rest of the world. <laughs> there is there is this element, right, of riding these bigger waves that is about managing fear. Yes. And I do, and 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 not avoiding the catastrophizing, because I see myself. I'll see this this wave. And, and when you, when you're riding an eight foot wave, six feet, I've become more comfortable with, and I can catch, but an eight foot wave, for some reason, eight to 10 feet is just, you're looking up and it's a wall of water. Yes. And it's about, you know, it's a, it's a house high wall of water coming at you. And it's got, so it's not just the height, it's the thickness. It's a lot of ocean that's moving toward you. And, and I find the thing that I love about this, I also went, I, I've been taking a, a free diving course and it's all about managing fear and feeling safety. And I had a fear spiral. I went to this spot on the North shore. The North shore of Hawaii has some of the biggest, heaviest, most pristine waves in the world. Yeah. And surfers from all over the world will come out in the winter when it's big. And so I'm on the North shore and the waves are over my head and it's crowded. And I went into an utter fear spiral and I felt it in my body. My whole body contracted. And I couldn't think clearly, you know, I was stuck in my amygdala and my brain and I, I just couldn't think. And then I beat myself up for feeling fear. And so I think it's interesting to test these limits because it's, it's all the analogies to life and feeling fear, right. And, and being able to manage that fear. And I, I just love it so much. I mean, I haven't, <clears throat> I haven't been able to surf since I was in California last year and I literally got two days surfing in, and, and that, that was it. Mm. And then my friend Duncan broke his foot down in Santa Barbara. So it's just like, oh, okay, that's the, the surfing holiday over. Duncan. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about Duncan tonight. And, <laughs> but there's this, and I actually don't try to go on big waves now because I did nearly drown in Portugal. But like, even I was at a point like, mm. as I'm under the water being held down and swished about and I'm like, okay, well, it's not been a bad old life, has it? You know, and yeah. <clears throat> there was... Yeah. A, I've never been able to articulate it very well, but when I finally got released that I could get back to the beach, mm. I was so, there was a point before that and, and there were witnesses. There were people there that will tell you I was, it was like about five minutes of me just coming up, getting pushed back under, getting sucked back, coming up. And it, it was just continuous as I was caught in this yeah. cycle, cycle of wave sets. But there was a point, oh. a, a point about halfway through, um, where I became very, very aware that I was too exhausted to do anything. Mm. It's just like, and I had this realization that I was going to drown, that, mm. that there was nothing I was going to do about it. And if I survived mm. this, <clears throat> it had nothing to do with me. And I, I didn't relax or anything like that because I was too tired mm. to do anything. The, the, just the, the, the physical exertion of those waves just, mm and just being so helpless, so vulnerable, so powerless. <clears throat> it just left me with like, I, I don't know how to articulate it, but funnily enough, mm. 
I've not been so keen to get back towards the bigger wage, like you say, when you, mm. but there is something that when you catch that wave, that for me at least, and it, it is a wall, and there's nothing you can see except this wall, but there, <clears throat> there's a, a moment like, especially when you put your hand into the wave, and you and you mm. it starts hugging mm. and you start hugging it, and yeah. in those moments, I'm able to tune into something that I don't have never felt anywhere else, and it's mm. I can almost feel the other side of the ocean in my fingers, mm. and I can hear the way the board is skimming on the water, and on one hand there's this roar of a wave, but then I can there's a silence, and below that silence I can hear just the way the board splits the water. And mm. in those brief moments, I feel a connection because it, weirdly I feel connected to everything because everything else has been shut out. Do you know I, mean? mm -hmm. and I, I don't know how mm -hmm. else to describe it. I think here in Hawaii, what they would call it is aloha. Yeah. And what I've learned about aloha is that aloha is, is really about source and connection to source. And there is something for me as well that keeps me going back to the ocean that is, that is spiritual. You know, there, there is, there is something. And, and I think it's also the adrenaline rush, right? When you're oh, on yeah. the wave and, and you, you were forced to concentrate and focus. And luckily it's one of the few sports where you're not bringing your, your cell phone. Right. No. And, you know, unlike running or God, my friends who snowboard, you know, listening to music, but there, there is a connection to source in that water but also knowing that you could, you could die. Yeah. And they, they talk about in surfing the two wave hold down. Like if you get held down for two straight big waves, that is the point where you could die. Um, where, where you have enough oxygen, where, where your oxygen gets depleted and you're flailing. And what I've been told actually, when you get held down by a wave is that you, you're supposed to crouch, kind of cover your head and your neck so that you don't get hit by reef or by your board. And actually, if you smile, it helps you relax and you don't burn up as much oxygen. Yeah. But of course, you're being pummeled, right? And and the fear and, and your body starts to flail. And so I've started to learn to actually kind of go limp a little bit and relax into it. But it's a very, you know, you're, you're kind of testing yourself and you're testing yeah. your limits. And, and you learn, I learned the deepest respect because when I came out of my free diving course, right? And free diving is no air, no oxygen you know, just, just whatever you can breathe and then go down, you know, 40 feet, 60 feet and beyond. And when, and when I survived that and I came up and I was like, very little else actually matters in this life. Like the rest is kind of gravy, you know, cause there are basic core survival things that we take for granted. And I, I don't know if you felt more gratitude after that day for being alive, but I certainly did after free diving and not not dying, <clears throat> not running out of oxygen. Um, I was in agony because I dislocated my shoulder under, oh, and um, and it, and it popped back in under the water as well. How big were these waves? Well, it wasn't just that the waves um, were big; it was the fact that um, we were in a bay that was wider at the entrance and narrowed. So as it was coming in off the rocks on the sides, it was lifting up, and it, it basically they were just yeah. closing out. They were closing out, and I was too inexperienced in that time to realize there was no way, uh, wave to actually ride because they were closing out. And they were. Oh, so you went towards it? Yeah, I was. I was um, out back. Do you know what I mean? So I will. Mm -hmm. I was determined to ride one of these waves, and I can still remember looking over the edge and realizing 
I was higher. I was about, you know, two stories up. And I was just like, I'm going to nail this. <clears throat> yeah. I was just like, I will nail this. And yeah. I just couldn't see that the waves were closing out and there was no face to ride. And mm, mm. But I didn't actually go for a wave. I didn't go for a wave. What happened was I just mm. like, do you know what? This isn't going to happen today. I'll save myself for another day. And I was the only person out. And it didn't occur to me that the 200 people on the beach wow. were, were out, were on the beach for a reason. And mm. uh, my friend had gone in as well. And, and I started paddling in and a set of waves came, came through. And of course, where they, it was coming inwards, one of them just, imp- and I just was in the wrong place at the wrong time and it, it just got caught in the impact zone. <clears throat> and it, and pushed, it pushed, you down. pushed me down, pushed me towards the beach yeah. and got getting pushed towards the beach. And I was like, well, this is fine. This, is, this happens all the time. This is great. I'm going in the direction I want. And I was quite relaxed. But then all the water had to come back out and I was caught in a channel. It sucks and it you back. Yeah. sucked me back. And it did, luckily for me, it brought me back up. And I was just like, oh, air. And I was like, well, this is okay. I've done this a hundred times, you know. But then I got caught in a set. And the next one literally landed on top of my head and did the same. And I was just getting pushed under towards the beach, yeah. sucked back out. And like I said, it, it went on for about five to six minutes. And mm. I, I just, I just go backwards, forwards, backwards and forwards. And then there was just, the, the sets just stopped. And at this, you know, and I just came up and I was still attached to my board. The lead hadn't snapped or anything. And I was just like, oh, gee, and just somehow got to the beach. And I walked past my friends and everyone straight to the car, put my board on the roof and just took my wetsuit off and just literally died. I just had nothing, mm. you know. Mm. Mm. See, this is, they actually have surf apnea classes for the for big wave surfers to train <clears> on <throat> how to handle this. And, and one of the things I learned from free diving is that there's a very specific breath sequence that you can use, you know, as you come up for air, but also that I could hold my breath for two minutes. Yeah. And knowing that plus the breath sequence has helped me because before I took free diving, I was at ocean beach in San Francisco and I got held down by an eight foot wave and that way by two of them actually. And that it felt like minutes it was probably less than 15 seconds. Yeah. But in those 15 seconds, you're violently getting churned. And I didn't know which way was up and which way was down. And I'm clawing. And as I'm clawing and I can't breathe, it's burning all my oxygen. And I'm panicking and it goes white. It goes light and dark, light and dark. And then it's dark. And you don't think you're ever going to see the light again. And and that, that really scared me because I didn't trust my body. And now going out in these waves, I still have a lot to learn. But I'm trusting my body more to be able to handle the the breath. But part of it is just the the freaking out nature of it. Yeah. But what you went through, I mean, it sounds like you were dealing with like double overhead waves. Yeah. You're talking what, fifteen feet, twenty feet? That's insane. That's insane. Like yeah. those are that's territory for big wave surfers for sure. And dumb people. I was in the right place at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> Looking for beach cues. That's true. If nobody else is in the water. Do you see what I mean? I was so wrapped up in hitting these big waves mm. that I ignored yeah. all of the cues, everything that was out there. Like, yeah. why were these really good, competent surfers who were local to Portugal, local to the area, why were they not in the water? Right. Do you know what I mean? I was right. just, like, I was so focused on, I'm going to do this. Um, and look, <clears throat> and, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's surfing or not. You know, you're going to, this applies to you as well. 
we can get so focused on what we're going to do that we're blinkered at all costs you know right it, well it, it is such a metaphor like even i was out there with my boyfriend in these eight foot sets in Haliva and he's like he's like come on just go go for a couple and i was like he's like go for two because i said i'm gonna go for one and i'm gonna go in he's like go for two and i was like actually no mm. like for me i'm proud of myself even just to paddle out and be amidst these monsters even if i don't catch them because i know that my brain is doing the processing to start to pattern match and start to build comfort. And, and, and that is enough. And I think sometimes even just expo it's kind of like exposure therapy, yeah. right? You expose yourself to the th thing that you're the most afraid of. And you could just look at a photo of it. If it's a snake, you know, you look at a photo of it and it freaks you out. But over time you can start to adjust and then eventually you can start to look at the real thing, but it's far away. And then it comes closer and then it comes closer. And I feel like that's kind of facing this fear too, and maybe facing any fear, which is like, you don't have to push yourself to the point where I'm spiraling out of control, but where I can also like hold my fear at a manageable distance and then treat it with kindness. Because I, you know, for me, fear is weakness. And especially when I was running the company, it was like, oh, if you feel fear, you're being weak. Like go be strong. But, but I remember Brene Brown talks about this and she says that courage, the root word is cur, which means heart. And and so actually fear, it, when you only experience courage as a response to a fear feeling, but courage just has to outweigh the fear, but it's not like you're fearless. You just choose to have more courage to outweigh the fear in you. And I always love that because it just acknowledges that, yeah, fear is human and important and it's, it's a data point, you know, and you yeah. can respond to it or not. Yeah, I don't think I'd have achieved anything at all if I wasn't scared. Mm. Being scared is what drives me. Mm. If, if anything, I fear comfort. As much as have I... Have you been I, too scared? What, have you been too scared to act, though, where that seesaw takes on more fear than it does the courage and the motivation? Nothing nothing comes to mind. I, I'm kind of good in those situations. Do you know what I mean? Because if, if, yeah. there is a self-loathing that I can become very lo lazy if I'm comfortable. And, yeah. and I then get, oh okay it's like mm, you know this isn't good is it because you don't like this guy because this guy sat and watched netflix for the day and it's just like you know it's like, mm, you don't like that guy and then the, then that inner dialogue starts running and you just like mm, yeah gonna be fat again soon as well aren't you Do you know <laughs> and, and, it, and it's just like same one. you know in in some ways i can be incredibly kind to myself with things like meditation journaling and stuff like that i'm very disciplined about those things but there, there's also a i don't know that narcissist is the right word it, no it's not but it's sprung to mind but it, it there's a cruelty that i can mm. be incredibly cruel to myself if i don't think and it, it doesn't have to be achieving big things I, I just i can't be that person that doesn't do nothing um mm -hmm. you know but weirdly, if I if I go on holiday, I can just sit on a beach for two weeks, do nothing but read books, surf, drink beer, and it's fine because it's almost like this is the time and the place to do it. Permission, yes. Yeah, yes, it's yes. permission. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way, and and I find that that if yeah, it, it's permission if it's like a two week period. But as it becomes my life, I find that if I don't exercise every day, if I don't if I don't do a certain amount of things each day, then I am lazy. And that is like one of my fears. And I don't want to be a mooch. 
Yeah. Because growing up, there was always there was always a mooch. You know, there's always a mooch in the family, and that mooch. We talked about it. Oh, that mooch was reviled. Like you never wanted to be the mooch. I'm like in my head. I'm like I will never be a mooch. You know, I and and that also codes as I will never relax. Yeah. And and my my coach always told me. And we said, you know, we're called human beings, not human doings. And I always thought, man, but what does that that mean to be? And I think it's a very Buddhist sentiment. I can't ha- wrap my head around it. I like the notion in theory, but it's difficult for me to wrap my head around, oh, if I did nothing all day, literally nothing, just watch Netflix, I don't know, sat in red, did, which is still something. But if I did nothing, yeah. could I still love myself innately? And that's not that's not a place that I've gotten to where the answer is yet. No, because I can read a book because I look at it as a learning task, even if it's a book of fiction. It, it's like it's I'm doing something specific for a reason. It's not the, um, but I can't I can't just sit and watch TV for the sake of watching TV. It's just like well, you've just wasted time. You're not getting back in your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's just like you know. But I can go for a walk with the dog for hours, and that's fine. Cause, mm-hmm. but it's because I'm walking the dog it's fine I, mm-hmm. there's a part of me that justifies I'm walking my dog this is for the benefit of the dog and this is how you're a good responsible owner do you know what I mean? not, it's nothing to do with the fact oh I just happen to like walking and the dog's a good excuse to do it whether the dog likes it or not and you know part of that is great it's how humans achieve things and it's mm. what drives ambition but I am interested and I, I do want to do like a silent meditation retreat when COVID, you know, blows over. But I am interested in the opposite state because if you can live in a range, you know, my, my goal, and I don't think I'll ever achieve it, is like, how do I get to almost the most perfect harmony with myself and my motivations and self-acceptance? How do I achieve that perfect harmony of self-acceptance? And that means that if today I'm tired and what I really want to do is just watch Netflix all day, can I give myself the permission to do it because that is what I want for the day? Knowing that tomorrow I'll probably be, you know, surfing a big wave and getting out there and, and being productive in my mind. Um, and, and to be able to be in, be in acceptance with yourself in all of those states. That's where I hope to get to. I have a theory on that. And that is we give too much to the kind of the Buddhist state of silence. With, because what we're doing is assuming that we're all the same and that we should all be able to get off on the same thing. And my caveat to that is it's not about whether you can silence the mind. You can just find harmony in, am I enjoying what I'm doing? So you can work 80 hours a week, but if you're genuinely enjoying it and you're feeling nourished from it, then that's who you are. And to do anything else would be counterintuitive to your instinct and the nature of the beast that you are. And it's recognizing that, that and accepting that. Do you know what I mean? And accepting that in all that it encompasses, you know, is, mm-hmm. is it because it feeds an ego? Is it because of an insecurity from a child? Is, is it because you're trying to prove something to yourself? Or are you just genuinely wrapped up in something that you're passionate about and enjoy? And if that encompasses mm-hmm. all your life, and you don't feel a longing for anything else. Maybe that's your purpose. Maybe that's what you found. Um, mm-hmm. and that, but I don't think it has to be any form of stillness at any point in time. Mm. Well, you know, 
I, I do think that's interesting because sometimes my lack of self-acceptance comes from the very source that would tell me to accept myself, which is this Buddhist <laughs> ideal of being the fucking Buddha. Right? Yeah. And it's like, wait a minute, they would be the first to be like, don't, you know, accept yeah. and love yourself. And I've been thinking about in, in the tech world, and maybe not just in the tech world, maybe it's kind of a generational thing, the idea of um, I work because I want to create impact. Yeah. You know, I want to help the most people at scale. But for some people, I'll go a level deeper, and there isn't that much below it. Mm. And what I've come to believe is that for some people, the idea of having impact is actually the new age term for wanting to be famous. Yes. And and wanting and, and it's an ego drive, which is unidentified. And I think as long as you can identify, you know, if you're that person that loves working for 80 hours, but it's not because it nourishes you. It's because you're actually looking for some, you're chasing stability, you're chasing money because you think it'll give you stability and you're unaware of all of that underneath the surface that requires self-exploration. But I also do believe in seasons. And sometimes there's a season for working 80 hours a week in a way that does kind of nourish you. Cause like, especially in your twenties, you've got that energy. You have, you almost have to go through that hell fire to learn and to come back from it. Right. But there, there is that season and to accept the season. So I, I, I do I, I agree with you. I do think that there is there is something to that that theory of just like, yeah, for some people that genuinely is what nourishes them and you're just different from me. As long as you've explored, you know, gone deeper than like I want to be famous or I want money. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's it's, it's knowing the difference. You know, you're never gonna sit still because that's the nature of your beast. That that's your instinct mm -hmm. is to learn, to be creative, to follow your passions. But through journaling, you understand where some of that comes from and why that's important and why it drives you. You know, you mentioned earlier that you were able to escape in your childhood at school and be an overachiever because of things going on at home. Okay. So you're recognizing all of that. But it's actually, weirdly, that taught you the independence, the facing your fear. And I think sometimes that's the, hard, the hardest thing to accept is those things that were dis we feel were disastrous as children created the tools that we needed into adulthood. We just don't see that as an adult. It becomes, mm. you, your perception mm. is that either you either work with it or you start blaming it, you know? Mm. And, mm -hmm. and I think it's learning to nourish it and love it and accept it. Oh, actually that overachieving at school because of what was going on at home, that enabled me at 19 to strive out and but do you know what? I can do this because this is just overachieving from school. Mm -hmm. But if you'd have had mm -hmm. a comfort comfort at home with everything you needed that, that nourished you and you'd have been the lazy one everyone was slagging off and taking the piss out of. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And you do you know what I mean? You'd have grown up into that, the mooch, is it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. You know. Right. But you had an environment yeah. that didn't allow that to happen. But you somehow instinctively were constructive with it. And I think there is a way to turn, I think Rilke talks about this with the dragons, you know, instead of fighting your dragons and your demons, you know, what, what if you were to kiss your dragon? Yeah. And I, I really, I, I had a powerful moment when I was 25 and I went to this CEO boot camp, and the boot camp was like, it wasn't push-ups, it was more like group therapy. 
and we went off into the mountains of Colorado and it was 15 CEOs and, you know, from, from pre-funding to exit and earn out. And no one was happy. <laughs> no one was happy. And for all various reasons. And, it, and I'm like, wait a minute, you're rich and you and your company did great. And, and, and you, you employ thousands of people. What the hell? And it's like, well, you know, my, my, I'm getting a divorce. My kids hate me. My health is poor, whatever it may have been. And, and so we started to go deeper and we started to explore parts of childhood. And that's kind of when I started to realize it, when I, when I was 10 years old, I was bullied very badly. And to the point where I was eating lunch alone in the bathroom and, and the coach from the boot camp came over to me and he's like, what does your company do again? I was like, well, we make sure that oh, nobody wow. eats lunch alone. And and I had been working on the company for five years. And and I thought I did it because like I like food, you know, and I like event planning and I like technology. And it's like, yeah, those things are true, but at the core of it, this like this this kind of like trauma of being bullied and being alone, actually I turned into something very beautiful. Yeah. Which was this this company and, and and not even just the company and not just feeding people family style meals they could eat together, but also the culture of the company, because we called ourselves a love company. And it was about like recognizing the whole human at work and and like all of this kind of came together and I was like, Wow, you know, I hate I hated being bullied. And I hate that feeling. And I still get triggered sometimes where I'm like, if I'm in a big group and I don't feel included, I can still feel like, I, I, I feel that distance and it's a horrible feeling. But it also has, it drove me to create something really beautiful. And, and so it's like becoming aware of like, wow, that thing that you could either hate it and resent it for the rest of your life and wish you had a different childhood mm. or you embrace it and, and, and you build from it and you, and you learn to, to grapple with it and dance with it. Cause it is, I mean, that, Basically, there was a little girl that never wanted anyone to eat on their own. That's it. That's and, it. I mean, it just I mean, comes. I... Sorry, it's it just when you look at it. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. It's just, I, right. it's just like that. That realization of the, the way you were treated at school that you kind of forgotten about, but from a really, really loving, generous place, I'm going to create an environment where nobody has to eat on their own again because I didn't like it. And not I'll make other people suffer. No, no, I, I'm going to mm. see the good in this. Mm. And I'm going to, it's just so profound. It is just so, and I hate it because it's California, but it's so bloody beautiful and, and love. It, it's, it's, you know I mean? but, it, but it is because there, there's a little kid there somewhere that recognized right. how lonely they were, how frightened they were, how much they didn't like not, um, not being liked, not having, <clears throat> nobody wanted to have dinner with me. And from that, there wasn't anything poisonous that grew from that. There was this incredible growth of, I will create an environment where it doesn't happen to anyone else again. You know what I mean? Right. It, it's, just, it's just beautiful. It really is. It's just gorgeous. It's, it was, I mean, it, it kind of, it changed my life to like uncover that, yeah. you know, and, and I think it's also an act of self-love because in many ways, I'm also trying to feed and nourish the little girl in me, you know, that felt alone. And, and 
it, it came up in such funny ways. You know, I remember at one point at the company, we were probably about 20, 25 people. And I'm, I'm working at the desk. We had this big open office in, in San Francisco. And I'm working at my desk and someone taps me on the shoulder and says like, hey, come to the, because we had like a lunch table, come to the lunch table. And every, and I kind of get up and everybody's seated and they're just kind of looking at me. And my, my heart just tightens. And my first thought is, oh my God, they're all they're. I was either, it was somewhere between they're going to fire me or they're going to leave me. Yeah. And, and instead they, they, they part way, they part the ocean and there's a cake and it's my birthday and they got oh. me a birthday cake. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, wow, where, like my instinct went one place. Yeah. And it was completely the opposite. And so it has its light and it has its shadow, you know, and, and the shadow is always there and it's, it's about, you know, trying to nourish and calm and soothe. And, but it, it, it bore something amazing. And like, even with two souls, that desire for that authentic connection and oftentimes over meals is still so deeply embedded in me. It, it's great. Like inclusion as an idea, like that is so deeply embedded in me that I'll always pursue it. Cause that is, it's really interesting. Cause there's a surfing analogy in that as well with big waves, <clears throat> you know, or just, or just surfing outside of your comfort zone that you face your fears, but if it works, it opens up everything. And right. like you say, you, you get to that table and they're all sitting there. And then the little girl, Tracy comes out who's racked with fear. And then it's the most wonderful moment because, hey, happy birthday. We all love you. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. And, you just, and you just like, and there must have been this like flip of a hundred, like one of relief, but then gratitude because like, shit, people like me. Right. And, you know, to, to bring it back to surfing for a second, my what I've been told about surfing big waves is that you shouldn't look when you catch the wave, you don't look down because when you look down, you see that you're up a couple stories right? <laughs> yeah, and, and all you see is yourself and, and your board, by the way, will follow your head. <laughs> yeah. And so you will plummet. Instead, you look down to where you want to be. You look, you look across the wave and that actually is much more manageable. And I think the lesson for me of that is like, Sometimes if we entertain our fears and the vision, the catastrophe of the future too much, we live into it, yeah. you know, we embody it. But, but if we actually look towards like, okay, this is the future that I want to embody, you know, I want to build a platform. I want to build a service. I want to build a culture that brings people together, you know, and yeah, who knows we might fail, but this is the path. And you look down the line that actually is way more successful and then it's less fearful. And then you can also enjoy the ride a little bit more. And that's that's I don't know it's one of my favorite parts about facing that. Yeah, and that that's life as well. You know, for for anyone listening, that that's life. Don't don't worry about how you're going to do it. Just look down the line and say, where do I want to go, and how you know, right. and then try and develop those and habits. Trust yourself. Yeah, yeah, de yeah, definitely trust yourself. But just try <laughs> and then like, what habits would I need to make that happen? To, to mm. I want to get over there. Mm -hmm. What's what's the character of that person? that does that and look down that line and don't deviate from mm -hmm. it you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's a phrase you've used a couple of times authentic connection mm 
Mm. And you used it at the very beginning to uh, describe choose um, that you were trying to create something that was a, an authentic connection. What is that to you? Mm. So it's kind of like in the beginning when you asked me, how am I doing? When somebody <laughs> asks me how I'm doing, I'm like, great. You got a drink in your hand? Cause, yeah. uh, it, 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 it's so easy to be like, I'm good. How are you? Right. And I, and I think, you know, at choose, we had this thing called the color system and it was the color check-in. So we'd, we'd say, instead of how are you, we'd ask what color are you? And you would be one of the stoplights. You'd be red, yellow, or green. And it's, and it could be personal or professional and you could describe why, or you could just say, I'm, you know, I'm yellow and I just don't feel like talking about it. Or you could say, I'm yellow. I stubbed my toe this morning and, you know, I, I'm feeling a little sick and, and whatever it might be. And it, and so it's to go a little deeper. Yeah. And I think I've been described to have an intensity, which I'm learning to be okay with, but it's like, I really like to get to know people in a, in a deeper, vulnerable way. I mean, this conversation is like lifeblood for me, you know? Yeah. I like, I love it because it's very real. And... Would you remember how we connected in the first place? You were in the back of a so minibus I... eavesdropping on a yes. private conversation. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Yeah. So and you we, just stuck your head over between the two of us like that's really interesting do you mind if i join in and it's like um, hello well, are you talking about your childhood yeah i'd like it's to like, join in it's like we've never really met by the way my name's tracy and i've been listening to you two of you talk for half an hour it was really deep and i have so many questions to ask you I just that's I I forgot about that. I'm so glad that you reminded me of <laughs> that it. It's imprinted <laughs> on me. It was um, it's it's unfair. It's for for people that listen. It's unfair. There was a funny three days where there was a collectively a group of us that you would never be able to repeat. But just something about that <laughs> energy, that moment, <clears throat> and and I'll give another example. Is <clears throat> there's a person we both know called Greg. Um, and Greg and I just happened to have the coolest apartment on this holiday <clears throat> by accident. Yes. <clears throat> and we, sorry. And we were also the only people that bought alcohol. And we, we had <laughs> vodka. Right, couldn't find it. Yeah. So we, we had bought it at the airport. And we had vodka. We had whiskey. We, we had everything. And so suddenly, Greg and I, who were clearly the oldest people, both in our 40s, well, Greg was in his 50s, I think, and I was in my 40s. Um, were suddenly the coolest kids at school. Not only did we have the place to hang out, we also had the, the alcohol and the pot and everything. We were just... <clears throat> and I remember there was yourself and Jenny. Um, the other one yeah. whose name I can't remember was Unwell and was upstairs. And Benny. Benny. Benny and Jen. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, Jenny was upstairs, upstairs unwell and Benny was in the yeah. room. And yeah. <clears throat> you, had, you and Benny suddenly decided mid party sort of thing to ask uh, all the guys in the room about relationships and <laughs> yes and we all all of the single guys had an opinion <laughs> the common denominator among all of us is we had not had not, not had a successful relationship and the guy who had been married or and still is married greg. for 20 yeah. plus years greg never said a word never interrupted never said a single word and for like three hours the rest of us just went round in circles about men, women, the differences. Why can't you understand this? Why can't you listen to that? And Greg just sat there, just just listening. But it was just this amazing environment. And that's yeah, 
I've never forgotten going back to the minibus. Um, I was, we we're having a conversation and you just stuck your head through. It's just like, oh, hi, I'm Tracy, by the way. I've listened to everything. I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> yep, this is, to me, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's just this, cur- I have an innate curiosity about people and what drives people and motivates people. And I also, I really do love, like I do really adore people. You do, yeah. You and are, you are genuinely one of the most sincere people I've ever met. Thank you. I, I, I really, I really adore people. I, I assume, generally I assume kind of best intentions or I assume that something happened, you know, something ill happens to me, something happened in their background. But I, I think that, you know, we talked about this a little bit before, like, especially now, it's such a polarized environment, yeah. you know, especially here in the States, you know, upcoming this election, like, it's so polarized. And we have every, everybody has this brand on their forehead, and it associates with party line or what you believe about a very specific issue. And we kind of forget that at the end of the day that we're all, I think we're all here to connect. And one of the biggest indicators for happiness is always about social relationships, like yes. always. And here we are destroying some of our social relationships in a time where we're all stuck at home and we need social relationships the most, but we just reinforce this isolation. And so, you know, I, and I've been battling myself with how much news I should be ingesting. If at all, it's an election year. It's very important, but at the same time, it's not helping any, it's not helping my happiness. It's not helping any of my social relationships. Like I could probably get it done in one big bucket of research and then be done with it. And, and so I think that authentic connection is actually the way that we come, that we kind of bridge the divide across differences and, and being, you know, being like a a female founder and being a minority founder, you know, people have, have always assumed they're like, Oh, it must be so hard to be a woman. It must be hard to be a woman in tech but I choose not to view it that way, you know, and, and, and I choose to actually, and, and if people ask me about it, I'm excited to share with people what it's like, but also to say, Hey, I think it's my, it's my strength. It's my advantage. Well, you I know? do have a, a weird question about that. Right. And before, Please. before we did the countdown, so just to give people some background, Tracy and I had a, like a 20 minute conversation just to catch up before we actually started podcast. Right. <clears throat> and, and one of the things I talked to Tracy about is the fact that, I'm 46 and growing up in the UK was very different to how it is today. Right. And one of the things that polarizes me, uh, especially being in the UK is we seem to get, people seem to get caught up in the politics of other countries. Now, I, now you, you might have more insight than this than I'm able to give because you know me from a different perspective to how I know myself. Right. Mm. So things in the UK that we have that have, always been different to the United States. The head of our country since 1953 has been a woman. We've had two mm-hmm. female prime ministers, right? Mm-hmm. We've had some incredibly successful female leaders, right? Everyone from uh, Linda McCartney to Anita Roderick, who was the founder of Body Shop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> some of our leading, most famous athletes from Fatima Whitbread, Tessa Sanderson, who are going back to the, the, the 80s, to Jessica mm. Ennis, right, who all won Olympic gold. Do you know what I mean? Now, we are far from a perfect system, but we've also had things like equal pay for 30, 40 years in law, 
You know, now that doesn't mean TV presenters, pop stars, film stars get equal pay. But if you work in a shop, you're all on the same wage. Do you know what I mean? We, we yeah. it's, all, it's always been like that. Yeah. It has been for. So, as I, but I look. Here's a caveat to that. I'm not saying there are not dickheads out there, absolute assholes who embarrass me, right? But when I look at my life, pretty much every great boss I've ever had has been a woman. All my mm. managers have been women, you know. Mm. I don't know why, probably because I've always worked in care professions, you know. Mm. Um, so I've always struggled with this concept that you're talking about because we don't really have a tech founder um, culture in the UK. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very much um, a Silicon Valley, California, San Francisco type. From the outside looking in, that's how it feels. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it's become a language that apparently has infected everybody. And I'm like, no, mm. I don't get it. But then is this coming back to what I was saying mm. earlier, that no, maybe I'm just a bit of a dinosaur? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> no. Like, here's how I take it. Here, Here's how I look at it. So the Me Too movement happened, and that was a really big moment in tech where – I actually got a lot of calls from reporters Yeah, and they were like, who, who do you want to out? Anybody name anyone. Yeah. And I thought it was vile. I was disgusted. I was really disgusted. And I was like, this is, this is not some witch hunt, you know? Well, it was, but I will not choose to be a part of this witch hunt. I've pitched, I've probably done 300 pitches, maybe 400 pitches. And over that course of the time, I've met many investors, most of them male, very predominantly. And I've only ever had one incident that was anything close to sexual harassment, anything close. And it wasn't, but where it was uncomfortable and it was like, and I, and I told him, I was like, I'm never talking to you again. And I'm never referring you to anybody again, but that was one incident at 400. Yeah. And, and so the problem that I have found with this narrative is that it scares women. It frightens women away from tech and from becoming leaders because it is the only narrative that the media wants to play. Yes. And that makes me very angry. That makes me very angry. And it also diminishes the power that women have when we walk into a meeting with a man because all of a sudden the only lens that we are trained in is that I'm a woman, you are a man, you have power, I do not. And yeah. we live into that lens. And, and we also stop our learning. I was coaching a female founder and she, she was pitching this man and, and he rejected her. And she comes back to me and she says, oh, he rejected me because I'm a woman. And I was like, really? How, did he say that? It's like, no, but he said that my vision was too small. And I was like, pitch me your vision. And she pitched it and I was like, it's too small. But here's the good news. This is a skill set, and here's let's let's practice making yeah. your vision bigger. And and she we made her vision bigger, and she raised around. And the thing is, when the narrative, there are times when that narrative is true. I think it is the exception. Personally, in my experience has been the exception, not the rule. The narrative of some guy coming in and he's chauvinistic or whatever, and he's not listening. Right, that is the exception, not the rule. In my experience. But when that's the narrative that's portrayed as the only narrative to pick, yeah. we stop learning. We stop looking individually and going, hmm, what is the thing that I could have done in that situation in order to achieve my goal? 
And sometimes it's out of your, sometimes it is out of your power, but most of the time in the United States, in San Francisco, it is totally in your power. And so I, for me, one of my goals is I want women to raise the narrative, women and minorities. I want us to raise the narrative for ourselves because we're not, it's great to have men as allies or majority as allies, but ultimately that's something that we can and have total power to do from within, but we can't buy into the media bullshit because that is all clickbait that gets us into these fear cycles. And I just, I can't stand it. So I do think that overall my experience has been a positive one and not a negative one in that regard. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, my fear has been that not that it wasn't true for some people, but am I missing something? Have I become so blinkered about something? I'm just refusing mm -hmm. to accept the truth in front of me. Do you know what I mean? Cause mm -hmm. it's just like, that's not how I've seen the world. Understanding right. how you see the world is also it's really important to understand the possibility of someone else's perception from their yes. from their base of experience, and and it's yes. and it's a it's a hard skill to learn that somebody else's perception mm -hmm. and experience is can be very different to yours. Right. So it, it's it's been nice for me to to hear that side of it. So it's like okay, that because we can become cynical about the agenda and the script that the media is promoting and the reasons why like you said it, it right. turned my my feelings about it were that there is a combination of a witch hunt going on and some people that need to be made accountable yes you know yes absolutely but there's a difference and, and it's not to say that we should that you know the good thing about the movement was that it it created a dialogue around all yeah. of this and I, and I think the dialogue is important, and I, but I think that the solution is the wrong one. I think the witch hunt is the wrong solution, and it gives away the power for women and minorities. And I think the right dialogue should be about how do we rise up to the occasion. And, and you know, for, for me as a female founder, I built this culture. We called ourselves a love and excellence company. And we had a really unique culture, you know, high EQ, emotional intelligence, but also held ourselves to high standards. And, and we, and we had people that loved that culture that absolutely, and we also had people that hated that culture, but <laughs> it was, it was a polarizing culture that, that what the people who loved it, I mean, they would have done anything for choose. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of that came from my perspective as a woman and I built it into the culture and a lot of men and women really were drawn to it. And so I kind of used that as a strength and built something that was very unique in a sea of startups that are all trying to hire talent. That, that's kind of one example among many. Yeah, it's just for reference, what does EQ mean? Uh, emotional quotient. So, Emotion. there's, so there's, San Francisco. <laughs> there's, there's IQ, right? So yeah. There's your intelligence. Yeah. And then there's your emotional intelligence. So that's the EQ. That's EQ. so funny. Wow, we really do come from different places. Yeah, but the, it's but the funny thing is, like you say, because we do, we we come from very different times, very different cultures, different, completely different countries, but we share a very common affection for people. If if there's one thing we have in common, it's our affection for people from everywhere, and you know, you, you and I both love seeing people succeed. We both are very hard on ourselves, you know. And we kind of do it from a place of sense of humor as well. Externally, we can be very, there's a, a lot of jokes we'll make about ourselves, 
you know but inside we we could be we might not be kissing the dragon so to speak we might be you know what i mean whiplashing the poor thing you know and but yeah but we come from complete opposite spectrums of of our of, of our world but somehow we've always maintained a great dialogue Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and i think i think that's that's probably the point of this right and i know you you've talked about this with with your podcast and for me too it's the point of authentic connection yeah because i find with everybody that i've ever met or talked to that i have more similar than different 100 percent, yeah you know and and i think you know there's a lot of there's a lot of studies about the differences between men and women um, but what they, the, if you read the papers in the beginning for, for context, they'll always say, really, we're majority similar. Here are some of the differences, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and we kind of forget that. And, and again, it's just a point that I want to hit home that like, when we look across the table and we see another human, but not somebody, not like somebody who's in a box, right? not somebody who's a certain race or who's a certain gender, but we see another human and we're willing to, as much as we can set a lot of those boxes aside and get to know them as a human, then the world becomes a richer place. The relationship becomes a richer thing and being. And, and I think the world heals from that place, you know, okay. as opposed to seeing the labels. I just, <clears throat> that, that's the authenticity part for me. That's why I started my YouTube channel, you know, and, and I want to dive into more of that authenticity you know, in training the next generation of leaders, you know, I want to teach them the, the first skill sets of, of how to found companies, but also, okay, now how do you do it authentically and, and like you? So go into your YouTube channel, because I, I did actually, because I have been watching it and I have made notes, see. I mean, I, I prep. all two episodes. <clears throat> yeah, but I, I, you know, I prep for my podcast, you know, <laughs> despite the fact I already know you, I still felt this desire to look up and see what, what you've been up to. Uh, um because weirdly uh, the the second video that i was watching if if i had just changed the word slightly it didn't sound like a company it sounded like a relationship and i wasn't sure whether it was both demanding and narcissistic or Mm. does that make sense it was just like i was listening to it and it was just like change a few words and you could be talking about a very demanding narcissistic relationship but i don't know yeah. whether both were, both you and the company were narcissistic and demanding or is one or the other i couldn't figure that out it's just it's like this yeah the, the... let me let me give you the context behind it so i, I did this meditation and it, and i had me explore my deepest fear or my it wasn't fear my deepest limiting belief I don't know if I got to the deepest one, but one of my limiting beliefs is that I'm very needy and very sensitive to the point that, you know, nothing and nobody can ever satisfy my needs. So you better not ask for it. Learn to be. And so as a reaction to that, I've become very independent and and I get very afraid of asking for my needs, whether it's a company or a partner. I'm in a situation now in Hawaii where I'm living with not just my partner, but another roommate, a good friend of ours. And I've been living alone for years. So all of a sudden I have to learn how to, and I've, you know, I've been working, my schedule's a little different than theirs. They're working West coast hours here in Hawaii. So they're active from 6am to two I'm surfing. And then I'm active from one to five. 
but they want to they want to talk in the afternoon and i wasn't good about saying hey guys and we don't have like a separate office so it's only the common area and i was starting to find myself just like resenting and angry and like wanting to just run away and i'm like what is going on they're good guys they're considerate what am i not saying and that's what started to get me thinking about boundaries. And then I have a, a few friends right now who are working crazy hours due to COVID because they don't have they don't have to do any commute anymore. They're working from home. They wake up, they literally roll to the side of their bed. They might brush their teeth and then they click open and they're in Zoom meetings all day. Mm-hmm. And then they click off and then they roll back, brush their teeth and they go back to bed. And it's and so that's kind of what got me thinking about boundaries, but I think it's very, very analogous to a relationship boundary. Mm. And, you know, it's hard to call, you could say that the, the company is narcissistic, but that gives it too much power. <clears throat> Ultimately, I think it is the responsibility of the founder and the leader to be able to say, look, the company does not control me. And, and maybe in that way, you could say, yeah, it is kind of like being in a relationship with a narcissist, but you do have to, I think it's more being in a relationship with someone who isn't necessarily thinking about you. They're not thinking, they're just, yeah. they're taking, they're taking. And it's up to maybe more like having a child. And it's more up to you to say, I love you and I care about this, but I need to be able to get eight hours of sleep, which means that even though you're begging for attention at all hours, Here's my limit. And in order for you to be healthy, I need to be healthy first. And that that's kind of the concept of kind of setting the boundaries with a company, which was my second video. Okay, so that, that does answer that. That does answer it very well. And I think actually the, the maybe the child analogy is better than a demanding relationship. You know what I mean? It was just like, I, 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 I must have listened to it about 10 times. So I'm trying to figure mm. out what I was hearing. <clears throat> oh, you're like half of my views then. <laughs> 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 but, um, you know what you... I love about I, I just have to say what I love about the English is that and the Jews is that we both have a very self-deprecating style yeah we do yeah. and sometimes when I when, when I'm self-deprecating with some of my American friends they're like are you okay like are you depressed and I'm like listen this is just it's like it's how my dad and I my dad's the Jewish one it's just how we interact like it's not maybe you could read a little bit into it but don't read too much into it but but it's a great example of that is I asked you what EQ meant and you told me, and I was just like, Oh, it's so San Francisco. I coach people on their bloody emotions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? I'm, I'm, a, Christ, I'm an executive confident and life coach. And I, 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 I help people with head injuries come to terms with their disasters and their families. I'm one of the most emotionally in touch males you could ever meet, but there's this Beautiful. very half Irish, half British, cynical 46 year old male who can't help but crack a joke about it as well and (laughs) did you know what i mean you have to move to san francisco i know 10 women who would love to date you i'm just saying there's definitely a dearth of you know emotionally intelligent guys well the funny somebody was asking me about um being single the other day and i come to the the conclusion good or bad that the common denominator is me so maybe i'm the problem (laughs) <laughs> now that I, I, could no be <laughs> me me as the problem or maybe just my choice of women is the problem but the common denominator is clearly me so so for any of tracy friends who are interested in that <laughs> you're forewarned <laughs> <laughs> i'm sharing the video right after <laughs> yeah but yes I, I am single 46 libra and um, in good shape i hasten to add <laughs> <laughs> 
No children, but I do have a dog. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> make fun of me for being high EQ. Yeah. Yeah. It'll teach you. <laughs> <laughs> there was a really good. Oh, sorry. There was something I wanted to ask you for that. So, how did you come to a point, like bringing it back onto seriousness, just for a moment? Can't be about me, just because it's my podcast. Right. <laughs> so, recognizing all of the things that were essential to run a good company, the, the, the very foundation of that is you have to protect yourself first, nurture yourself mm. first, protect yourself mm. both physically and emotionally, which is the hardest thing for any mother or parent to do, whether it be yeah. of a child or of a company, which was incredibly hard for you to do. Yeah. So I want to be gentle but the question that pops into our head is what went wrong that forced you to do it? If, if anything. Oh God. Went wrong. Yeah. It's hard to say that there was one inciting yeah. incident. You know, I think it was a buildup of slowly, but surely, especially cause I worked weekends for the first six years yeah. and I slowly felt myself resenting the company. <clears throat> but ultimately resenting myself as I looked at my, you know, I started the company when I was 19 and I saw my friends who were working in banking, working in corporate. Um, they had really awesome jobs. They could afford nice apartments. They would go out on Sundays and have boozy brunches. Now, like I don't even like drinking during the day, but, but the, this idea, yeah. I, you know, I, I wasn't dating for the first several years of it. I was afraid to date because I didn't think I would have time and energy. And so I just slowly started to resent myself. And as I, as I started to resent myself and be unhappy, um, you know, probably fundraises were, were some of the inciting incidences. Like I would get so depressed during fundraises. It was so psychologically damaging. And I remember key moments where I was, you know, nine months into fundraising and when you fundraise as a founder, for me, I actually leave the office because it's so, it's such a solo sport and it's so, it's such a solo sport and it's so emotional and, and I just wear my emotions on my face and I can't hide it from people. And every day people would be like, how's the fundraise going? So I would leave. So I'm, I've been in my little apartment for nine months, pretty much alone, working to save my company's life. And I'm super depressed and I'm questioning, what am I fighting for? You know, and, and I think and I think as I started to get later into my 20s, the question of a good life, the question and, and also at this point I was dating and I had gone through a couple of failed relationships um, and and one of them very close to marriage. And I started to imagine the rest of my life for the first time. I never did that. Yeah. You know, I only saw my life as, oh, my God, I might die at 29. Right. There's just some some cliff there. and I was going to die. And so I was like, wow, I actually have a longer life to live. How am I going to fill that time? How am I going to be happy with myself? And, and, and going to that CEO boot camp and meeting Jerry Colonna, you know, of Reboot and, and my coach, Khalid, Halim, I, I, these, these were my mentors who started to remind me your life is valuable too. In fact, it's more valuable. And they taught me to release any shame that I felt about wanting good life personally. So I think it was a, it was a collection of people along the way, as well as my investors, the Foundry Group, you know, J 
Jason Mendelson and Brad Feld and Ryan McIntyre, these guys were, they were critical to, they put money into the company, they wanted it to grow, but they also said, you should be spending a certain percentage of your salary on a coach or on a yeah. therapist. And I was like, wow, these, and, and by the way, these were all men, my mentors, they all happened to be, and they were all telling me to have a good life. And, um, and so finally I kind of got with it and I was like, all right, game on, let's, let's try this weird good life thing. So if, if it was possible and you were somehow able to go back to 19 year old Tracy, right? Mm. You're not telling her anything. You're not telling her how you got to Honolulu, right? Or Hawaii, mm. wherever you are, <laughs> right? You're not going to tell her how you get there, but you're going to say to her, you set up the business, you sell the business, and you move to Hawaii by the time of 31. Would she have been happy with that? Mm. No. I, I think, you know, my ambition in the beginning, so it's funny, I talk about impact being the new famous, right? I think that I wanted to be famous. I wanted this, I had very much, and it wasn't quite that stark, but it was very much my ego was poured into building a very large company. And if I do start a company again, I won't say that I don't want to be famous, but I think it will have to come from a place that fuels me even more than that. I think it will have to come from a place of deep passion and joy and actually loving what I do on the day to day on most days. Yeah. So, so I, I think like I, back then I wanted to build a company that was going to be a public company. I was really hell bent on it, which is actually perfectly aligned for venture. Like in, in many ways I was in that sweet spot, but I think now my ambition is less about having being the CEO of a public company just cause I can. And it would have to be deeper than that. It would have to be about a much, and, and I did care about authentic connection. Don't get me wrong. No, no. But that wasn't the main driving force for me on the day-to-day, -day, I think. And I think for the next one, it would have to be. Well, because interestingly, with my own therapist, one of the things, because uh, I still see a therapist, uh, Caroline, um, I've been seeing her for about five years, and I still see her every month because I have to have that headspace where I can mm -hmm. have that non-judgmental mm -hmm. spot where I can just talk. Right. And interestingly, and it's something you and I touched on pre-recording, um, that one of the things... I had to accept is that I do want to be famous mm. in the sense of the more kudos followers I have, the more famous I have, the more kudos I effectively get that somehow justifies mm. that I know what I'm talking about, mm. which means mm. I can reach more people who don't have to pay for me. Mm. <laughs> you know, I put out content, as I said, every single day, right? Which, but the weird trade off for that, is for that to have the biggest amount of impact, I have yeah. to become famous. Yeah. And it's taken me a lot of therapy to think, to realize, actually, the thing that is embarrassing me is accepting that I, I want to, I need to be famous and I want to be famous. Mm -hmm. But it's that, to, to use your words, it's that authentic connection. Because to me, the more people will then listen to me and haven't been in a suicidal place myself in my 20s, I understand the value of words from somebody that you potentially respect and that mm -hmm. those words can save people's lives. And you can mm -hmm. have that 
impact of somebody. I mean, I, I get it now on things like TikTok where people message me or leave comments. It's like, I really needed to hear that today. Now, for someone like me who has been in a position where they were going to commit suicide, that is, I know from my experience, which we're going back, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, that perception of experience from someone, I know what that might mean. That person mm. might have been mm. thinking of actually killing themselves. And then that mm -hmm. continues to make me put content out, which then mm -hmm. makes me like, okay, I need to be more popular. I need to be more popular. But I'm not actually weirdly trying to be liked, but I am mm -hmm. because right. of, of what's behind it. D -d Does that make sense? It's, and it's a difficult well, one. Is, Sorry, go on. This is the link between impact and, and fame. Yes. Right? Or Because... Ultimately, especially, and, and, and as I produce content too, I'm grappling with this, right? Mm -hmm. Because I look at the Instagram models who are, you know, maybe that's fame for fame's sake, right? And I'm like, oh God, like yeah. I can barely, I can barely stand when people have like really beautifully um, done wedding photos. I'm like, oh God, if I get married, like just use your iPhone, like we're gonna, we're gonna be fine. But, but there is something about like, if you have a message, yeah. Right. And I do. And I, I'm very, for me, I'm very connected to, to founders, especially first time founders and minority founders. If, if you have a message, then actually being recognized is the way to spread the message. And, and, and I, and so I'm kind of watching it, I'm playing with it. And I want to just make sure that I'm not doing this because, oh, the external validation is great. Because also, if it's all about external validation, I won't be as willing to be polarizing which is something that I'm proud of at Shoes, we were willing to be polarizing with our culture. And we did something that some people hated and some people loved. And I wanna make sure that when I go back to the message, that as I build out content, that I can also build things that some people will absolutely disagree with, but the people that, that I really care to impact will really love it, you know? No, um, I, I do. But because... not for the sake of being polarizing either. But it's, it's true because it's, it's the bit that I, I struggle with the most is, you know, and I'm not famous by any stretch of anyone's imagination, but it, it's, are you doing this because you really are trying to help people? Or are you doing it because, oh, you want to be famous? And it was a, a lot of years of figuring it out. And I finally mm -hmm. came to accept that, how can I put that, regardless the the intention is from a good place i know mm -hmm. how dark life can be and i know i can share that with people i can help people i know that because i've been there um and i've made a lot of mistakes and it's and it's knowing that that it comes from that foundation that's like okay any light that's shined on that is good i can cope with that but there was a big deep fear that no no you you just want to be famous <laughs> Mm, you, know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You, you just want to be cocky and smile at people and say hey look at me mm, mm, right it's it's not that simple no. i don't i don't think it can be that simple when we reflect that much you know for some people it can but i think that's a thin veneer and it usually doesn't last people that long but i think for probably possibly over stereotyping for people like ourselves who are very reflective we will over analyze yeah. And we will go down rabbit holes that were never really there, but we dug them ourselves without realizing. That's very true. Yes. You know, 
and we think yeah. something's really, really deep. And it's like, no, it was never that deep. But you dug such a bloody hole trying to figure it out because the answer was already there. It's just like, it's too simple. Let me right. spend the next six months diving down this and going off and creating, it's a, true. <laughs> creating a maze I can't get myself out of. It's like, oh, shit, how it's did true. I get even in here? You know? Yeah. I've, I've, I've definitely talked to a friend about, like, this, this self-reflection, and he's like, I am not convinced that it is the better way to live, you know? And I, and I kind of love that brutal honesty, right? Because I love, like, it is the way that I have chosen to live my life and, and that kind of depth and reflection, but it is hard to tell if it is the better way to live when you uncover so much, but you also hide so much from yourself in that attempt to uncover. I often say the problem with cliches is they're cliche but they're so mm. bloody true. And sometimes ignorance is bliss. Mm. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And people yeah. who can just glide through life, not questioning everything, you know, like yeah, in right. the middle of a meditative contemplation state, if I'm not careful, I will yeah. ponder the reason the butterfly landed in front of me. Is that a message from the universe? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I was thinking <laughs> yeah, of that yeah. color right now. And, and is that yeah, get, yeah. does that then mean in five years, this is going to happen? Do you know what I mean? It's just like, maybe David, it's just a butterfly landing. Yeah. <laughs> no other reason. Right. It's a sunny day and you're outside and there's a butterfly. Oh, wow. What a coincidence. You know right. I mean? The universe right. isn't constantly trying to talk to you. Yeah. In fact, yeah, the universe totally. probably wishes you'd shut up. Yeah. <laughs> and just chill out and do something. Um, just maybe try and relax once in a while. So it is, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's, it can be dangerous for people like us. If we don't have something constructive um, to focus on, we can, like anything, you can overtrain, you can overdiet, you can overread, you can overstudy, you can over-socialize, too much drink, too, you know. And I think sometimes we can be a bit too reflective, too deep, and dig trenches where there wasn't that, any reason to start a hole, you know. Right, and, and sometimes it's too much in the head. Yeah. It's too, it's too rational as opposed to heart or body. And I think that is where the Eastern philosophies do get interesting of like trusting yourself and your intuition. That part is hard when you're like reflective and everything has to be constructed, you know, whether it's externalized, right? Or there's like, re- there's a reason for things as opposed to like a reason for things. Yeah. So, so I am also trying to, and I think that's why it's important for me to get to an island, yeah. you know, like they say here that with Aloha and that, and even the Hawaiian people, that they're much closer to their subconscious and that there is because of it, like spirits, signs from the world, intuition is a little bit stronger here. Now I'm in the middle of Honolulu right now. I'm going to move to the North shore in a little bit, but you know, Honolulu is a big town. It's like there's 800,000 people that live here, you know? So it's still a big city, but there is something about like being connected to the ocean and to the trees here that does kind of move you from head to like everything has an ROI, everything has a reason, everything has a piece of data associated with it, just kind of down to like, okay, actually there's something far bigger than me. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm excited to be here and listen to that more. No, I, I'm hoping that goes well for you. Just out of curiosity, what would you do again? Because on the, on, on the YouTube channel, and I, I hear this, they talk about what they wouldn't do and the, the pitfalls to be mm-hmm. careful of. What would you yeah. do again? Mm. Um, we, my co-founder and I set up our values for the culture 
when it was just the two of us, when we were hiring our first employee. And we went into this room and we just said, okay, let's dream about our future office at 20 people and what it's like and the values we hold. And we wrote, we mapped it all out. And then we each picked three and they happened to be the same three. And we created a value system that we then changed again at 20 people. And then we updated at 200. And I would 100%, like that was our guiding light for building such a strong culture. And I still talk to a bunch of Chooselings today. So did you just say Chooselings? Chooselings, yeah. <laughs> That's what I call them. No, I just, it just, it, it's incredibly cute. It's just like they, the offspring have names. It's just like... Wait, the, the, the alumni network. Yeah. And, and there was a D and you know, they're very, we're all very close and connected and wanting to support one another. And so I, I, th you know, I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the intention that we put into the culture. And I, I would a hundred percent have done that again from like pretty much day one. Okay. That was, that was a big one. Cool. And that's probably a great place to end the podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah. Cool. Anyway. Thank th you. <laughs>